when we look into Matthew and he gives us what we call the Sermon on the Mount and for our purposes, the Beatitudes. He takes us to a place where he has said things to these people that they did not expect for him to say. You all know how expectations work in regard to your interactions. You know that if you go through Chick-fil-A, that the employee there is inevitably going to say to you, my pleasure, when you have concluded your time. When you pull into the drive through of a Cane's, you will get the, a clever rhyme like, chicken, chicken, what you picking? We know that when we drive through McDonald's, they're going to tell us the ice cream machine is broken. <laughs> These are the things that we know. When we don't get those things, the my pleasure, when we get a, uh, what do you want? When they tell us the ice cream is working, we're shocked, maybe even startled. We order multiple ice cream cones. We don't even know what to do with them. When we get to this place in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is saying unexpected things to these people. He has just concluded saying those things. And there's something happening in Matthew's Gospel that I don't want us to miss over these next few weeks as we walk through these various verses together. You can see a, 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 a tiny bit of a breakdown for me today as I use this passage, as we walk through this passage. The first thing we're going to do is look at the setting of what's taking place there. Secondly, we're going to look at the shock, because there is a shock that comes. And finally, we get the statement, the statement of our day, the statement of today. Uh, there's something happening here in this gospel, and it is the idea of the writer Matthew bringing us back all the way to things that have been said throughout the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, there were words that were said to the Jewish people that are echoed in Matthew's gospel. When, they, when we would read, come through the promised land, God gives them a covenant. He lists off blessings and curses. We can look and we can notice as we walk through that Old Testament text, that passage that's there. That you see the people of Israel, they've been delivered. There was a point where they were in, that they were in Egypt. They were moved out of Egypt. They would go through the wilderness and they would eventually this land of promise, God's great covenant. When we meet with Jesus in Matthew, when we pick up in chapter 4 and chapter 5, we see that he has come out of Egypt. He has gone through the water and through the wilderness. And he is bringing them into a covenant of promise. We see these echoes as well in the, in the idea of the Psalms. Psalm 1, we see the idea of what it means to be blessed. A continual phrase that you can see throughout the history of the Jewish people. That because they were in covenant relationship with Yahweh, they were blessed by Him. All that beatitude means is blessed. It can be understood in a couple of other ways, but they are all tied together. One word may be happy, which doesn't give us the full-scale picture of what's happening there. Another word that may be helpful is the word fortunate. The idea of happy, fortunate, and blessed. Jesus comes into this world and into this scenario and into this situation and he has numerous people there. And what we find is this is the point in history where his fame is growing, it's spreading. You have these poor shepherds that are there, as well as fishermen, and poor in general. And all of them have gathered together because of the growing legend of this brand new teacher. On top of that, you have Pharisees who are there too. They're asking the question, will this Jesus be for us or will this Jesus be against us? Is he going to be a rabbi like the rest of the rabbis or will he be like John the Baptist? Will he get in line? You have the notion of the possibility that King Herod or someone who represents King Herod is there as well. Looking and hearing these words of Jesus, evaluating every enunciation from his mouth. 
We pick up in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, and we see this. Now, Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread through Syria. So they brought to him all who were afflicted, those who were suffering from various diseases and intense pains, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, and the paralytics. And Jesus healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. This massive crowd of people wanting to hear what this new rabbi has to say. Verse 1, When he saw the crowds, he went on the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And then he began to teach them, saying, I can think of none whom I could call blessed. A tenth my tongue proclaims. A man who can rejoice in his own children. A man who lives to see the downfall of his foes. Happy is the man who lives with a sensible wife. The one who does not plow with ox and donkey together. Happy is the one who does not sin with the tongue and the one who has not served an inferior. Happy is the one who finds a friend, the one who speaks to attentive listeners. How great is the one who finds wisdom. But none is superior to the one who fears the Lord. I did not get a new translation. Those are the words of another Jesus altogether. 150 years before the life of Jesus, there was a man named Jesus ben Sira, And he was a well-regarded rabbi of his day. And the idea of conversations from Pharisees and rabbis about blessing were popular. And they would come in and they would speak to whatever situation happened to be there. And when they would speak to this, they would say things that people were, had inevitably heard before because the rabbis had this consistent notion of holding down the impoverished and not allowing them to attain what they should attain. They wanted to keep their power, claim their power, hold fast and firm to their power. These are not the blessings of Jesus. They're the blessings of Jesus ben Sarah. And this respected teacher makes these points which are consistent with numerous points that have been made by rabbis very much like him leading up to this day where Jesus walks to the edge of this mountain and begins to preach and teach these people and very much like it startled you when I read words that were different than what is actually there, these people were startled as well. Because Jesus says something to them that spits in the face of the familiarity. And when Jesus says these words, it unearths something in this crowd that happens to be sitting there. Think about the words that this man has said. Timothy Mackey, he does the Bible Project. You may follow that. He points out some problems with the line of thinking of Jesus ben Sarah. And they're very helpful for us to consider. Because if you were to just read that and you were not paying attention, maybe, just maybe, you would line up with some of the things that he said. That sounds good, that a man should have a sensible wife. I'd be in trouble if I didn't have one. Well, many of us know that these things sound great. But Mackey points out that when he says, blessed is the one who has listeners when he speaks. That's saying that this man knows that when he speaks, everyone thinks that he's important. When he says, blessed is the one who does not serve an inferior, in a world that Jesus lived in with this cutthroat hierarchy, this means God cares for you if you... God cares for you and you can know that 
if you never have to serve another person of lower status. When we read something like, Blessed is the one who lives to see the downfall of his foes. You know that they believe that God is for you if you win. Jesus comes into a world that's expecting him to say something like that. That he would be just like every other teacher, every other preacher, every other rabbi. And in that world, Jesus begins to say something altogether jarring. And when he says these jarring words, the intent is for it to meet the people where they are. And the world-flipping, jarring words of Jesus sound like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. If your expectation of Jesus is for him to say everything that you've been hearing your entire life, for him to say this to a crowd of poor fishermen, poor shepherds, and holistically poor people, Jesus has just opened a door for you to see that the idea of interacting with God, it's been offered to you. And that you are not less because you have less. Well, one theologian says this, too often these characteristics of the, of the Beatitudes are turned into ideals that we must strive to attain. As ideals, they can become formulas for power rather than descriptions of the kind of people characteristic of the new age brought to us in the person of Jesus. Another theologian says this, these blessings, this wonderful news that Jesus happens to be announcing is not saying try hard to live like this. They are actually saying this. They are saying that people who already are like that are in good shape. They should be happy and they should celebrate. We look into the Beatitudes and we see this unique build because you start with the idea of blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is a statement of now. Until you get to the last beatitude, every other one is a statement of what will be. And we will look into those in depth as we move forward. The last beatitude brings it full circle and mentions yet again the idea of what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. We read through passages like this, and if we're not careful, we can miss what God is saying to us, about us, for us, to our unique situation and our scenario that we happen to be in. Jesus starts, and he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. What a phrase. Can you imagine if you are sitting there on the mountain... As this rabbi sits down to teach you. And you are wondering where your next meal may come from. And we know from other situations in the Gospels that these people would sit down wondering where their next meal would come from. Loaded on top of that is the baggage of every teacher you've ever heard telling you that blessing is for those who have 
Blessing is for those who possess. Blessing is for those who have a bundle of goods. And if that is the case, then the antithesis of that would be you are cursed, in a sense, if you do not have. These people have heard these words their entire lives. They've been told that the power are powerful and cared for by God. They've heard these phrases from these various teachers. If you look into this, you have these people who are holistically impoverished. And they are standing in great contrast to what the New Testament teaches us about various other powerful figures. They have no resources. They have no power. They have no formal teaching. They are unblessed by the standards of the world in which they live. Jesus is making an announcement to these people about this kingdom. Now you may be sitting there thinking, is this whole thing going to be about the economically poor? That's not the best way to celebrate the 4th of July. Is it not about the spiritually poor? Is this conversation that God is having with us from this text about one thing or the other? Is it an economic situation? Is it a spiritual situation? When you look into the text, it takes us to what we see in Psalm 33. Where the psalmist says, Look, the Lord keeps His eyes on those who fear Him, those who depend on His faithful love, to rescue them from death and to keep them alive in famine. God seems to be speaking to those who are in the worst of the worst situations. God seems to be inviting them. Luke doesn't even mention the idea of being poor in spirit. He just says poverty in general. Blessed are the poor. What are we to do with this as people who believe the idea of who God is? What does blessing mean anyway? What does it mean that God would offer those of us who are poor in spirit a, a, a happiness, a fortune? Are they poor? Are people looking to them? Evaluating their poverty? Their poverty ran beyond just their financial situation. They were also poor of status. No one cared what they thought. Maybe you feel that way at times. No one cares what you think. They're in the worst situations and they are most likely to receive help from someone. Uh, the, those in the worst situations, when we begin to evaluate it, are most likely to receive help from someone outside of themselves. That's at the heart of what Jesus says to these people about the idea of their poverty of spirit. He says to those of you who realize that your enough is not enough, I'm for you. For those of you who look and you see that you are spiritually bankrupt, I'm for you. Is Jesus talking about poverty? No, Jesus is using a word and a concept that each and every one of us have some type of familiarity with as an entry-level conversation piece to these people. If you have realized your, your bankrupt nature, if you have realized the depth of your sin, then God is for you. Much of what we see in regard to Christendom in these days and in those days were those who were in positions of power did not realize their, the weight of it, the ramifications of it, the impact of it. And if I were to ask a question of myself this morning, it would be, do I see and do I hold in some type of, of regard that my sin weighs heavy? The entry conversation about bankruptcy is helpful 
Because in the world that Jesus happens to be teaching to, He's talking to men and women who were without. And that's where the conversation starts for them. It's so hard to think about poverty in our day. And Jesus will eventually say that blessed, we, we say it each week as a church when we quote the Lord's Prayer together. The idea of give us our daily bread. That is a foreign concept to us. If we do not have something, we might more than likely have someone we could call to help us. If we, if we do not have someone to call to help us, we'll go to the bank and we'll make sure that we have credit. We make sure we don't worry about the things that we want. We don't worry about what we're going to eat or what we're going to have. We worry about, hey, is it going to be good enough for me? It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of how good and how much. Jesus talks about money more than anything else. If you spend any time in the Gospels, you see that. It's this helpful conversation He's helping these people to have. So start anywhere else. For Jesus to begin this conversation anywhere else in this passage, He loses the whole of this crowd. Yet Jesus has just said to those of you that I'm sitting in the midst of, if you realize the bankrupt nature of your very condition, then blessed are the poor in spirit. You're... Enter, you're allowed. You're part of the kingdom of heaven. This is not saying that our resources are curses. However, they might be functioning that way if we're not using them to bless. These people are fully impoverished. And they are standing in great contrast to the rich young ruler that we read about in the Gospel of Luke. This rich young ruler who had power and status and he was also young, which is a very helpful thing. There's the parable of the rich man and Lazarus we see in Luke chapter 16. We get to Luke chapter 18. If you've got your Bibles, feel free to flip there. If not, just not trust me to read. In verses 9 through 14, Jesus tells this parable to the people. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and they looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee being the, the heady, wealthy, well-acknowledged and respected one. The tax collector is someone who took advantage of the lowest of the low. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy and unrighteous. God, thank you that I'm not an adulterer. And thank you, God, that I'm not like this tax collector. Can you imagine the audacity of that prayer as you tap the head of the person next to you when you acknowledge how problematic their situation is? But if you'll notice in his prayer, you notice that it is full of the antithesis of bankruptcy. This man is thanking God that he has a bunch of stuff. That he has these spiritually significant things taking place in his life. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not a tax collector. I'm not greedy. You know what, God? I, I tithe twice a week. I've got enough to do that because you've blessed me in that way. I give a tenth of everything I get. He's taxing on top of... I mean, he's tithing on top of tithing. But this tax collector, if you're unfamiliar, who robbed the, the majority of the people he came in contact with, he's had this really odd moment where he begins to cry out and say to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This man has realized that the idea of his accumulation is not satisfactory. 
His whole life is based around the idea of him accumulating things from me and accumulating things from you, robbing and stealing and taking away. And as he looks at all of these things, he realizes these are not enough. I'm bankrupt. At the base of bankruptcy is God have mercy on me, a sinner. When we look to this text, we're looking and we're hearing from Jesus say to us in this beatitude, this is about the invitation of God for you to be part of something. Now we don't want to over-spiritualize it, but we don't want to rob it of the reality of the moment that Jesus is speaking to. Maybe for you it's not a matter of, of financial poverty, but is there a place in your life where there's, there's something that's lacking that Jesus would draw and point a finger and say to you, Blessed are you. I want to meet you there because you realize that you are in need and I'm the one that you need. Jesus speaking to them. Letting us know that our enoughs are not enough. None of yours are. Mine either. We, we can't be kind enough or smart enough or funny enough or cute enough or whatever enough. You can't have enough in your bank account. Our enoughs are not enough. And people should not be tricked into thinking they have the kingdom of God because they've got a great bank account or they have really good Instagram posts. Bankruptcy is where this passage takes us because that's where God meets us. Spiritual bankruptcy. And he's using the bridge of their current situation to show that to them. Tim Keller uh, former pastor in New York says this about any of us who may say that we've got our stuff all together. That we've made sure that we've picked ourselves up by our bootstraps and we've satisfied the world. In the economy that we see God dealing with in the scriptures, you don't have bootstraps. You actually don't have hands to grab your boots. He says this, Humans have very little power over their lives. 95% of what sets their course is completely outside of their control. This includes the century and the place that they, who their families are, their childhood environment, their physical stature, the genetically hardwired talents, and most of all their circumstances. All we are and all we have is given to us by God. We are not infinite creators, but we are finite, dependent creatures. With that in mind, we look into what Jesus is doing here in this passage as he's calling us to this place of realization of bankruptcy. Of realization that God wants us to see this depravity in our souls. We need him to meet us. Isaiah 66 says this about this Yahweh that we meet. My hand made all of these things and so they all came into being. This is the declaration of the Lord. I will look favorably on this kind of person. I one who is humble, one who is submissive in spirit, and one who trembles at my very word. These people hear Jesus saying the idea of God and who God is, is for them. Is that what we realize about God? That in Jesus, he has said to you, the idea of interacting with God is available. It is there. Kingdom of heaven, as I said earlier, is used twice. It's the only clause that is in the here and now. The rest of them are the to be. Myself and a couple of my friends are going to deal with that over these next few weeks. The idea of what is to come, what is to be, what is there, what, what you will att eventually attain. But kingdom of heaven is used here. And it's used at the end to bring it full circle. This is 
God letting us know that the idea of meeting with Him is possible right now. In the Beatitudes, God is letting us know how to live in the present in a way that makes sense of what the future is. I love time travel. I've never done it. Consider it a lot. Um, I like to read books about things like time travel. I like to watch TV about time travel. I like to watch movies about time travel. And if, it, I mean, if we're being truthful, at some point in every one of our lives, we have thought about what it would mean to travel through space and time to another point in history. You've thought about how it would be to be there when a president was inaugurated. You've thought about what it would look like to be there when the nation declared its independence. You've considered what it would be to be there when Jesus fed the 20,000 people. Maybe, just maybe, you've considered what it would mean for you to travel through time and see something that took place in the past. Just so that I know that I'm not crazy, if you've ever thought about going to another point in history, could you raise your hand? Look at that. My people. I rarely think about going to the future, though. Maybe because it's so unknown and so unfamiliar and it seems so far away. Maybe it's because when I consider the future, I think about how daunting it may be. Maybe it's because I wonder if I would get to a place in time where I wasn't there. But whenever you see fiction depict the idea of traveling not to the past but to the future, what takes place when they run forward or they time turn forward, or they quantum leap forward, Scott Bakula, shout out. What happens when anyone travels to the future, they always have an experience that causes them to come back to where they came from, letting everyone know they've experienced a really good future, or a really bad future. So we need to correct this. What God has offered us in Jesus in this passage, this Jesus who meets with us, blessed are the poor in spirit, God is saying, you have reached and you have interacted and you have, you have seen God's glorious future. And for any of one of us who claim belief in Jesus, faith in Jesus, we've met him at that depraved, bankrupt place. When we've met with Jesus, what we are in effect saying is, we have experienced God's good future. How does that impact how you live now? Because the idea of the kingdom of heaven is not about what takes place when we die. There is a hint of that, an echo of that. There is a reflection of that. But God is speaking to what it means for His people in the here and now to live as if they have experienced God's better future in the person of Jesus. That's why we as a church pray every week from Matthew chapter 6... Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's people experiencing God's fullness and, and seeing the opportunity to live that out in the here and now. Are we people who are living as if we have experienced God's good future in the crucified and resurrected Jesus in the here and now. I want to pray for us. I want to pray that we would be unlike all of those very odd beatitudes that the people were so accustomed to hearing. 
but that we would be people who see that we have met God in our, in our depths of despair and greatest need and that we need Him. Heads bowed, please. Jesus, we thank You for today. We thank You that we get to meet with You in Your Word. We thank You that Your Word is full of power and truth. God, we thank You that You would speak to our situation, our scenario, on a morning like this. God, I pray that we will see what it means to be righteous. Because we know the depths of our depravity. Our spiritual bankruptcy. So Lord, bring us to that place. Lord, if we have made much more of ourselves than we ought, I pray that you will convict us taking us back to the hope of reconciliation, which seeing that we need you. Because, Lord, we, we can't experience the rest of what these Beatitudes teach us apart from acknowledgement and evaluation of our spiritual bankruptcy. So, Lord, let us see that there is hope for those who are poor in spirit. And let us bear and bring hope to those who may not know you as we live out uh, these principles of you taking everything that we understand about how the world should work and you turning that inside out. We ask this in your name, Jesus. I'm in the back right-hand corner of the room if you need me.